Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Reset. For generations, Native people in the United States have struggled to afford and access the indigenous foods that made up their ancestors' diets. In 2015, the average income on reservations was 68% below the U.S. average. That's according to an analysis by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. And now inflation and climate change make these foods even more expensive and harder to access. Here to discuss how this impacts Native people in Chicago and beyond is local chef Jessica Pomonicut. She's the executive chef of catering business Pan and Kitchen. I want to get into indigenous foods and access in just a moment. But first, let's learn more about you, chef. How did you first discover your love for cooking? Well, I have been cooking since I could reach a stove. Um, my mom started teaching me very young. It started with an easy-bake oven and went from there. But growing up in Chicago's American Indian community, you know, every time we got together and every time there was events, you know, I was always in the kitchen helping. So being in the kitchen is second nature to me, and it's just something I enjoy doing. It's a way that you show your love for your family and your community and the way you care for them. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, you've got a catering business that's got to focus on indigenous food. So tell us how you got the idea for it. Well, um, when I started culinary school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. And then a good friend of our family, the former uh, executive director of Trickster Cultural Center, called me up and he said, hey, I'm having this event and I need catering. I'm like, so what are you calling me for? (laughs) He's like, you're a chef. I'm like, but I don't have a catering business. He's like, you do now. And then I started working for him, doing catering for his events, and I loved it. And it was no different than what I had already been doing in it. And it just brought me so much joy that I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, Kita Pen and Kitchen, where does the name come from? Well, the name in, well, I'm uh, an enrolled member of the Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin, and Kitapanin is an expression of love in our language. And one day we were in the kitchen, and my little boy Jax is my taste tester, so he was testing something, and he loved it. He's like, you know what, Mom? You have a Kitapanin kitchen. I'm like, wait, that's pretty catchy. Mm. And that's kind of where the name came from, you know, and everything I do is with love. That's the way I was taught. You put your love, your good feelings, prayers, good thoughts into the food you make because you're not only nourishing bodies, you're nourishing your spirit. And so it just made sense that that was the name. I love that. So what are some of your favorite menu items to make? Well, my blueberry bison tamales seem to be pretty popular, turkey cranberry tamales, Mm. um, my traditional wild rice, which is with uh, maple syrup, wild rice, and um, nuts and berries. That's another one of my favorite dishes, but there's all kinds of stuff I can go on all day with my whole menu. Oh, that sounds wonderful, Chef. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You you spoke recently with the Associated uh, Associated Press for an article about access to Indigenous foods. Tell us more about how inflation has hit your business. Oh, well, you know, like I did an opening back in November, and the cost for that opening was probably less than $1,000, and it almost doubled since then. And most of the ingredients I use, because there's no, like, native, like, providers, like, in Illinois, a lot of things I have to go to other places in other states for, so even shipping costs and Driving to get ingredients, the price of gas, all of that has made it much more difficult for me and has made me look for other ways to source my ingredients. 
and um, it actually, you know, I decided to start growing for myself, mm -hmm. and uh, it led to me creating my Seed to Feed initiative, which would help bring these foods back to my community. What specific ingredients are you finding more expensive or just harder to find? Well, wild rice, for one. At one point, I was paying between 5 and $10 for a pound of wild rice. And now, for the traditional true wild rice, it's about $20 a bag. Wow. The same thing with bison. Bison, I use bison chuck roast for my tamales. The price has almost doubled since last year. My goodness. But these, you know, access issues with uh, indigenous foods... This problem, Chef, it didn't start in 2022, did it? No, it's it has been a problem since we were relocated onto reservations. You know, every generation has issues with access. There's just different issues that affect the access, but it's, it's always been an ongoing problem since reservations. What role is climate change playing in this? Well, for example, last year, we, you know, wild rice grows in water. Because there wasn't enough water last year, the water levels where the wild rice grows, were it was very low. So the crops were probably half of what they should be because it was too dry last year. And so a lot of those things affect growing. Yeah, and these stats I'm, I'm looking at here, according to an analysis by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition of the uh, 2018 U.S. Census, the national poverty rate for Native Americans was around 25%. Uh, it was around 21% for Black Americans, just over 8% for White Americans. So a stark difference there. Yes, very big difference. Can you help some listeners who, who still might not get it? Help us understand why it's so important for Native communities to have access to Indigenous food. Well, if you look at, like, historical documents, you know, when, you know, colonists first appeared here, Native American people were very healthy. As, you know, we were taken away from our land, forced onto reservations, and all the foods that we had, you know, relied on for centuries were taken away, and we were given, you know, commodities, and, you know, now even the current American diet isn't very healthy. All those things have led to high numbers of diabetes and heart disease and other diseases that are really, you know, prevalent in our communities. So going back to a traditional diet, a decolonized diet, in reintroducing those foods that are much healthier for our bodies, that they're not GMOs, you know, they're organic things, you know, that aren't grown with all these, you know, chemicals in the soil. Those, it's really important just to bring back healthier future generations. Can you speak to the um, the emotional toll of not having access to indigenous foods? You know, for me, like I grew up in Chicago, 250 miles away from my reservation. So for me, like to get wild rice or to get um, trout or to get fresh picked berries from my reservation, it was a real treat for me. And, you know, as I'm going through and my business is growing and trying to bring those foods in, like it's, it, it feels bad to me when I can't give my community what they need because it's so far out of reach sometimes. And the thought of being able to bring it back, it really speaks to my heart. But, you know, just growing up, like I said, those those traditional foods for me are a taste of home. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know every time I eat those things, and especially when I know they've come from home, like whole corn and wild rice, you know, I feel like that same sense of security I felt as a child eating those foods. You know, I, I can... I can sympathize because I, as an immigrant myself, I, you know, I'm Jamaican-born, and I know what it feels like every time I've moved to a different place and I can't find food from my native country, right? And I can't find 
the ingredients to make food from my country. So I can I can only imagine, yeah. Chef. What's it been like for you to to train as a chef and also to build a business as one of the only uh, or only a handful of Native American women chefs who are doing this in this country? You know, it was overwhelming. Like, um, I can't even begin to describe how emotional of a process it was for me. But as I've been going through it, I realized I've been given a unique position. I live in Chicago, a cultural mecca where every, you know, cuisine of every ethnicity is within reach except for my own. And the, the, the fact that I'm able to change to that and open the door for other Native chefs and other Native women to come behind me and find a place and to bring these foods to my community, that it fills my my heart with so much love and it just makes me feel really good yeah. that knows that I've been given a position where I can bring change and visibility. Yeah, that's wonderful. How are you sourcing your ingredients? Well, right now, I am, I've, like in Indian country, we have a way of doing things where you know somebody who knows somebody who has something. So I've been going through those kinds of networks, calling people to find out where I can get certain ingredients. Mm-hmm. And often I drive to go get them. There have been times I've driven 500 miles in one direction to pick stuff up. But there is a resource available. It's the Intertribal Agricultural Council. They have a website that has a list of Native suppliers and growers that I can start ordering from. The only barrier right there is right now shipping costs are pretty high. So what solutions have you found to to combat these rising prices? You talked earlier even about just the stark difference in the price of wild rice. Well... I have um, two people growing for me, um, my parents being one of them. They're growing some stuff in their land That's in um, southern Wisconsin. And when I created my Seed to Feed initiative, which is you know focusing on helping make these foods accessible to my community, I started talking with a bunch of different organizations and individuals, some Illinois farmers who took an interest in growing some of our traditional foods. So hopefully by next year, this time, there will be, you know, harvest available to my community. And these rising prices, Chef, they're, they're impacting who's available to uh, afford your catering services. Yeah. Is that right? It, 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 it is. And most of most of my community, it's with, with, not within their budgets, but I do offer budget-based catering for nonprofits, for other Native organizations so that they still have access to my menu with, you know, some discount for them because I realize how hard it is with, you know, finances and smaller organizations that have tight budgets. Mm -hmm. So I do my best to work with everybody to make it affordable to them, even sometimes at a loss to myself. Which is is so important, but I I understand the the push and pull there. You've said, I've heard you say in other interviews, that you see food sovereignty as a potential solution here. For those who may not understand what you mean, what is food sovereignty? I mean, to me, food sovereignty is learning about indigenous foods. I mean, most people don't know that 50% of our planted foods are indigenous in nature. So first of all, gaining that knowledge and understanding, you know, what indigenous foods are and reincorporating them to an into our diets, but also, you know, growing them in traditional ways, which I'm still learning about. But going back to all that and bringing those foods, you know, those foods back into our diets is so important. And that's what pretty much what food sovereignty is, is, is reclaiming our traditional food. What could food sovereignty look like for the Native people living here in Chicago? Uh, um, well, I mean, right now it's, it's not it's not a pretty picture, but 
hopefully in the near future, there will be more accessibility for my community. I and mean, we have the largest urban native community in the country. Uh, the last time I checked, there was over 30,000 native people here. So being able to find ways to bring those foods into my community at no cost or low cost, that is something I see happening in the future and something I'm working very hard for. What would you say that you've been learning along the way about some of the traditional growing practices? Well, I, I'll be very honest. I don't have a green thumb, so I, I'm doing a lot of researching. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, we had so much better practices back then and better harvest. And I think there's a lot that farmers these days can learn by, you know, going back and looking at what we used to do. I know there's some, but I wish I could recall the name. Someone just wrote an extensive paper on this about our traditional growing practices. I'm actually waiting for a copy to read it. Oh, great. But they said there is some, there's a lot of value in looking at those former practices and, you know, reincorporating them. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm old fashioned in some ways. And I think, you know, the old ways were really good. I don't know why we changed Oh, yeah, them. <laughs> I totally agree with you. The past can just tell us so much, honestly. Yes. So what can folks listening right now, what can they do to help? Well, I think educating yourself about Indigenous foods and, you know, moving towards healthier diets by incorporating those foods into your diet. I mean, some of them are already there, but looking for foods that are not genetically modified and then being good land stewards, taking care of the land. I mean, there's so many things that pollute our food sources. There's mining, you know, polluted waters, um, pipelines, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, if we take good care of the land, the land will take care of us. Chef. So I think being conscious of that is, is the most important thing. Chef Jessica Pomonicut is the owner and executive chef of Kita Pen and Kitchen. Thank you so much, Chef. All right. Thank you for having me. This episode of Reset was produced by Sarah Stark and mixed by Ethan Schwab. If you liked this episode, subscribe to this podcast for more. We recently talked about the challenges of tracking and reporting sexual violence to Chicago's police department. We pulled data and about 80 to 90 percent of police reports for sexual assault had no follow up, no next steps afterwards. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you for listening. We'll see you Monday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.